Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. As Pearson Airport struggles with numerous issues, how's Hamilton's airport doing? Controversy on Pope Francis's pilgrimage of penance. Another tongue lashing for Rogers Communications and the CRTC. Why are Dutch farmers protesting? And the Ticats and Alouettes buttheads in a big battle in Steeltown. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Not much chillaxing going on at Pearson Airport in Toronto. According to data from flight tracker Flight Aware, Pearson is the world's worst airport when it comes to the percentage of delayed flights. In fact, it's the only airport on the planet that has more than half of its flights delayed. This is true. From May 26th to July 19th, a study conducted by Flight Aware shows that Pearson saw 52.5% of its flights delayed. The only airport on Earth above that 50 percentile figure. Frankfurt Airport in Germany was next at 45.4%. Uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport in France... In Paris, 43.2% of flights delayed. Uh, Airport in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, 41.5%. Gatwick in London, 41.1%. Heathrow in London, 40.5%. And Munich Airport in Germany, the only other one, above 40% at 40.4%. And not only that, Pearson is fourth in the world when it comes to canceled flights. Six and a half percent of all flights at Pearson canceled. Only LaGuardia in New York, Newark Airport, and an airport in China are worse when it comes to canceled flights. So Pearson's not alone, but it is amongst the worst, or it is the worst, when it comes to delayed flights. Which brings me to the question, what's going on at Hamilton's airport? Are they facing the same kind of issues? Is it smooth sailing or smooth flying, if you will? Dina Carlucci is the Director of Business Development and Customer Experience at Hamilton's John C. Monroe International Airport and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dina, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. Good morning to you. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Before we get to what's happening at Hamilton International, just some thoughts on what is occurring and what you've seen and heard coming out of Pearson. Yes, thanks for asking that. Um, I I do have to call out the fact that it's an industry-wide issue. Um, Airlines, airports, um, concession partners, car rental companies, they're all suffering uh, from the effects of the pandemic and what it left behind in terms of staff shortages. And so um, it's trying to fill that gap, trying to get people back to these roles that uh, really, you know, blacked out, if you will, through through the, the dark times of the pandemic. And so the demand is so strong, especially this summer, it's building back. And, um, and, and that's what we're hearing from our airline partners is that struggle to get uh, the staff levels back to where they once were pre-COVID. And this is staff levels like throughout the airport. It's not just one section of it. Correct. Anything that touched uh, the sector of the industry uh, was definitely impacted because, as we know, travel restrictions really uh, clamped down on the ability to travel. So, um yeah, there was a lot of, uh, you know, people who left the industry, if you will, uh, pilots, flight attendants, et cetera, that uh, impact, you know, who's there now to, to run the operation. So what is life like at Hamilton International? Give us a sneak peek for those listeners who have not flown or have no uh, desire to do so because of what we've seen over the last couple of years. What's happening at Hamilton International? 
Yeah, so we are, we're a smaller airport, and, and thankfully, because we're a small airport, what we're running mostly is a, a domestic program in Canada. Uh, we work with a lot of low-cost carriers like Swoop. Uh, new to the, to the uh, airport is Lynx Air. We've worked with WestJet for years on service into their Calgary hub. Um, and then in the winter, we welcome back seasonal carriers like Sunwing and Transat. So we have the full roster of carriers that have always been with us. And um, because we're a smaller airport, uh, the schedule mirrors that. And so um, generally, our flights are going out, um, going out. They're going out very full. Uh, again, the pent-up demand is, is proof of that. Um, it, it, we're not immune to staff shortages, but generally speaking, we don't have the type of issues that the larger airports are facing. Um, to give you a perspective of that, um, if we moved 400, 420 uh, aircraft uh, through the month of June, we saw a cancellation rate of 2%. Uh, so let's say two flights a week that were impacted uh, because perhaps there was crew shortages and so they had to cancel the flight until they got a new crew on board. And some of this could be even, um, you know, time off uh, called in. Uh, so they have to rejig schedules accordingly. When it comes to delayed flights, and I just mentioned canceled flights at 2%, Pearson is, is experiencing 52.5% of their flights are delayed. Do you have that percentage for Hamilton International? Um, I don't because it's not as significant as what you've just uh, said for Pearson. Um, we do have delays. They're very minor in nature. We're talking 10, 15 minutes on average is what we see. Um, so it's it's just, again... You know, part of the operation sometimes is impacted by what's happening at the larger airports because the aircraft could be coming in from some of those areas. But generally speaking, um, the operation is running relatively smooth. We don't have a lot of international flights through the summer. We're flying into St. Pete's, Orlando and Las Vegas. Um, and those flights uh, are a small portion of the total flights that we have. So, again, a lot of what you're seeing on the news has to do with international flying, uh, customs processing, bags, etc., all of that is going smooth at Hamilton Airport. Dina Carlucci is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dina is the Director of Business Development and Customer Experience at Hamilton's John C. Monroe International Airport. We've got about a minute. I, I want to ask you this. Has there been yes. any discussion on um, accepting any overflow from Pearson, i.e., you know, they're, they're having so many delays. Can we accept a few flights here to Hamilton or is that just an absolute no-go? That's actually a general discussion we're always having with the airlines. Um, we feel, again, with the population so so significant in southern Ontario, we are very proud to be an alternate airport for some of the large airports like Toronto Pearson and even Billy Bishop. So that's an ongoing conversation, um, not necessarily one even related just to the issues of now. But, you know, how can we profile Hamilton a bit more? And we've been doing so uh, successfully over the years. Uh, Pre-COVID, we almost reached a million customers, and, and that was a significant milestone for Hamilton International uh, for the reason that it's proven that there's a population here, there's there's a population in close proximity to the airport. Um, when you look at other areas in the catchment, like London and Kitchener-Waterloo, um, Niagara Falls, so we're a great alternate. Um, get off the highways. There's no need to travel toward Toronto and get stuck in traffic. You can go against traffic and come up to Mount Hope in Hamilton and a flight of Hamilton International Airport. Yes, it is way easier and a lot less stress and uh, not as many delays, obviously. Dina, appreciate the yes. time today. Thanks for joining us and uh, best of luck down the road. Thanks for having me, Rick. That's Dina Carlucci, Director of Business Development and Customer Experience at Hamilton's John C. Moreau International Airport. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Pope in uh, Quebec now for his pilgrimage of penance. He was in Alberta for the last few days, arrived in Quebec the other day and held uh, a, uh, another ceremony and apologized once again for the Catholic Church's role in residential schools. There is some controversy, though. Controversy that has erupted uh, back in uh, what was that ceremony uh, near Edmonton. And it revolves around the headdress. If you missed it earlier this week, before the uh, apology happened, Chief Wilton Littlechild placed the headdress on the Pope's head uh, at this ceremony. But the, uh, the powerful and symbolic moment is not sitting well with a lot of people. That includes our next guest, Angela Belgard, is an Indigenous Reconciliation Strategy Manager with Our Kids Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Angela, welcome back to the show. Hi, always a pleasure to be here. How did you feel when you saw Chief Littlechild gift the headdress to the Pope? Well, I have to say gobsmacked. It's the only word. I, uh, I, I really am still trying to come to terms with it and try to see all sides of this issue, but... Um, you know, just a quick look at the social media verse, if you will, and all platforms. A lot. This is not sitting well with a lot of um, Indigenous community members. Now, I trust uh, and deeply respect uh, Mr. Littlechild. Absolutely, this is one of our preeminent leaders in the community, and I know that he followed all the appropriate protocols in order for the donning of that headdress. This does not happen in our community without a great deal of discussion and a great deal of, of um, consultation with elders and others. And I'm sure that there was ceremony around uh, the thinking of, of doing this. Um, so I do, I, I do trust the Treaty 6 protocols and that this is what they do, and they felt this is important. But as... Um, is a just an indigenous community member. I really have a hard time seeing that special uh, bonnet placed upon his head, and uh, I, I really it does not sit well with me at all. And I, I really it's going to take me some time. I think I, I don't know if I ever actually will come to terms with it. It's just this is this is really. Something that our, our warriors, our leaders in our community um, are gifted. And I, I can't necessarily say I think that he is, uh, the Pope is a warrior for Indigenous people. So wh- maybe before we continue, what, what does the headdress represent? What's the symbol behind it? Well, it really is, you know, just um, a, a very special symbol of who is a leader. A true, uh, we could be an elected leader, so you will see chiefs wearing them because they are warriors for Indigenous people. And that's where it really has come from, right? The a tradition of, of those who have gone and protected their community, whether it be protection from um, warring tribes or from famine or whatever. But this is a symbol of leadership for our people. Um, and so, to, and we do, uh, we will, we will give to non-Indigenous people, you know, so I, that's why I say I do trust 
is that the protocols, and there was lots of discussion around this, but sitting back at this time in reconciliation, I'm not sure if the time is now for that to have happened. So I I am having a bit of of trouble with this because, um, you know, I don't know if there's been enough accountability yet. The apology is a start, but there's um, more that I think that needs to happen. Do you think he would have been more comfortable if this happens maybe towards the end of his pilgrimage of penance, as he calls it? I don't think I would have been comfortable even at the end of this pilgrimage of penance, because I think that more more needs to happen around the accountability um, of the Roman Catholic Church. I believe that he, you know, as I said to you a couple on the show a couple weeks ago, we wanted the apology to be heartfelt, authentic, and intentional. And I think that happened, and you can see the faces of residential school survivors and the meaningfulness that that had, and this is a start to their healing journey. But I also think that those words that he said um, were also very carefully crafted, and he, there could have been more explicit wording in those um, in what he had to say. So, no, I don't think I would have been comfortable even at the end of it. I think I'd be comfortable, you know, with the, after some real action. That, and I would say that the the calls to action that call on the Roman Catholic Church to be accountable are started to be uh, enacted. So what are those actions? We've heard uh, from a number of individuals who want certain things to be done. We we have the apology. What what needs to happen now? What are some of those actions that you want to see? Well, absolutely. And I think, you know, this does talk to, um, there's four specific calls to action regarding the Church's apology and reconciliation. And the first one is about the Pope coming to our land and making that apology um, overall. But it does ask, for an apology that talks about not only the spiritual, cultural, emotional, physical, but also the sexual abuse. And as you know, that that was not said. And that's where I say the words were very carefully crafted. Uh, calls to Action 59 calls on the church to who is a party to a settlement agreement that was uh, negotiated back in 2006-2007. And that, unfortunately, has not really been enacted. And that is... Um, settlement agreement to really look at the education of the Catholic Church's congregation about the real truth, calls, and number 60 calls upon any seminarians and, and those who are studying theology of the Roman Catholic Church that really understand that truth. And Rick, you and I have talked about that truth. You know, it is, is looking at and understanding deeply the horrific things that have happened at residential school systems. And, you know, it does, calls to Action 61, calls upon the church to that settlement agreement to, to work and with the survivors and the representatives of the Indigenous Community of Canada to establish permanent funding for that healing process and for continued education to happen around this. And if anything good comes from this, uh, you know, pilgrimage of penance is that now Canada, all Canadians, have a better uh, understanding of this, but I think, uh, and, and, I'm, and the world is watching. I really believe the world is watching this. But what now, what leadership will he bring now to all of the congregants of the Roman Catholic Church? Because that's a large population that he is the leader of, 
and we can see some change happen. Will Will that happen? That is yet to be seen. That's the question. We will uh, wait and see. Angela, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us this morning. Well, thank you, Rick. Always a pleasure. Angela Belgard, Indigenous Reconciliation Strategy Manager with Our Kids Network. Um, Any residential school survivor or the relative suffering trauma invoked uh, by this um, issue can call 1-866-925-4419. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Remember July 8th? Wasn't that long ago when pretty much half the country was in the dark? Yeah, Roger Communications on the hot seat on Monday at a House of Commons Industry Committee meeting to answer questions about that crippling network outage. What happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen so long? What are you going to do about it now? Some of the questions fired off at uh, Roger's boss, Tony Staffieri, and a number of other executives and individuals involved in that outage. So what happens now? Dr. Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and a member of the Centre for Law, Technology, and Society. Dr. Geist, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, thanks so much for having me. Back on Monday, we heard from committee members that uh, were asking various questions and hearing testimony about the outage, uh, including uh, some testimony from Roger's boss, Tony Staffieri. What, if anything, caught your attention back on Monday? I have to say what caught my attention is, is less about what happened as, as on that day, uh, which I think by now is, is reasonably well known. We know that it wasn't a cyber attack. We know that it was an internal mistake, effectively, by Rogers as they were making a transition in their network. And the result, of course, was disastrous. But really, for me, the, the far bigger question was what next. And there's the, the specific what next about how Rogers will seek to address some of the problems within its network, and they committed to putting in some big spending to try to do that. But the bigger picture questions about concerns, about consumer uh, consumer compensation in these kinds of cases, about the communications that take place, about the state of competition in Canada's market, I think the, the big takeaway from the hearing on Monday was how little both Rogers, but even the government and the CRTC wanted to talk about those issues. Yeah, the CRTC's response to the outage was was criticized uh, on Monday, including its decision not to pursue a full public investigation. Does does the CRTC have enough powers to do so? Does it need additional powers to do that? I think the CRTC has to use some of the powers that it has. You know, I think that there, I think there is definitely scope for. For more, regu- for more regulation in this space. As I say, I think we've got real concerns about some of the kinds of things, let's say on the consumer side, for example. It's not clear-cut what consumers get in terms of compensation in this, kinds of, in this kind of case. We can contrast that, let's say, in the airline sector, which isn't anybody's idea of a model right now. But nevertheless, there are some rules that specify if your flight's delayed by a certain amount of time, this is the compensation you're entitled to. We don't have anything like that in this sector. And so if there's an outage, how long does the outage need to be and what kind of compensation? At this point in time, the company just kind of makes it up as they go along and make a decision. I think many think that there ought to be some clear rules there. But more, the CRTC has powers to, to incent competition in this space, try to bring in some of those new kinds of competitors. And we heard a CRTC chair that, uh, as one MP said, sounded an awful lot like a telecom executive. There was a lot of talk about 
leaving it to the industry, for example, to address some of these issues as opposed to taking that more proactive role. When it comes to competition, we know we have uh, not even not even a handful of uh, major players in the industry. Would more competition uh, help in this regard? Would it push other companies to do more, to be better, to have systems that don't break down? Well, listen, I think everybody, nobody wants to have their system break down. And so on the specific incident, it's not clear that uh, having more competition would change that. But I think more competition would change a couple of dynamics. First, this affected 12 million Canadians. It's an astonishing number, and it reflects the fact, as we've been saying, that there are so few major carriers in this country. And so when you do have an outage, it affects far more people than would be the case if we had think, a more robust competitive environment. And so, for example, even with the proposed merger between Rogers and Shaw, that would bring even more people into the fold that would have been affected. So that, I think, speaks to that issue. There's also a problem that I think a lot of Canadians learned, I have to say myself included, is that they're pushed towards bundling, where they find themselves with a single provider for all of their services, for wireless services, for broadband services, home phone services. It's all in the same package. And part of that stems from the fact that pricing is so expensive in Canada due to the lack of competition that Canadians feel that one of the only ways they can try to find a way to counter that is to take advantage of those bundling discounts. But we now learn that that comes with a real risk, that if you put yourself with a single provider and that provider goes down, you lose access to everything and you're literally take it offline from a communications perspective. Absolutely. In this case, it's not good to have all your eggs in one basket. Dr. Geist, appreciate your time this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. Oh, thanks so much. Have a great day. That is Dr. Michael Geist, law professor at the University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and a member of the Center for Law, Technology, and Society. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You may have heard in the news about some protests in the Netherlands involving farmers. They've been blocking roads. They've been tooting their horns. They are up in arms. But why? What exactly is going on? Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us once again on Good Morning Hamilton. Marvin, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you today. This protest has has to do with the Dutch government's efforts to combat climate change, right? Right. And, and they actually, it goes back to 2019. So uh, to take you back to that time three years ago, uh, the Dutch government received some uh, uh, disturbing reports about nitrogen being released into the air and into the soil, uh, not uh, just elemental nitrogen like we have in our air, roughly 70% of the air we breathe is nitrogen, but two specific forms of nitrogen, nitrogen oxide and ammonia. And the sources of this nitrogen oxide and ammonia, the report said, was mostly due to the agricultural sector farming people who raise pigs, people who raise cows, uh, and this uh, material, nitrogen oxide and ammonia, was leaking into the environment from them. The report proposed uh, cutting the amount of these emissions by 50% by the year 2030. Well, how do you cut these emissions on farms? The conclusion of the report was that they needed to reduce the number of these farms, reduce the number of, of animals, pigs and cows, being raised on these farms, and farmers went, uh, wait a minute, this isn't fair, why are you targeting us? There are other industries that release these things into the environment. They pointed, for instance, to the airline industry, 
to transportation to construction. They also released this, but farms accounted for roughly 45% of these emissions into the environment. So in 2019 and up to February of 2020, there were farmer protests against this move. However, COVID came along. (laughs) And once COVID came along, two things happened. The farmers stopped protesting and the government stopped pursuing this issue. They said, look, we've got bigger fish to fry. We need to get COVID into the rearview mirror. So everyone's emphasis changed. That reversed itself in May of this year. So now that COVID seems to be moving into the rearview mirror, uh, this issue came back to the forefront. The government of the day again introduced some legislation to see the amount of nitrogen oxide and ammonia being reduced. It specifically aimed at the farmers and the farmers once again said, wait a minute, this isn't fair. And so you mentioned, for instance, that the farmers have been doing their own form of convoy, uh, tractors blocking roads, uh, protests at the side of the roads, but they've even been a little more aggressive, dumping garbage and even animal manure onto roads, onto other areas in, in protest. And some of these protests have actually seen a clash between the protesters and the police. Uh, And so they've been getting increasingly violent as they go along here. Can't say uh, I would argue against the the farmers because obviously it's their way of life. It's the way they make a living. Some of these people have been farmers for generations and generations and generations. And they just feel it's so easy for the city folk to come after the country folk. So, uh, again, most recent development has been the attempt by the government to appoint a mediator, a negotiator, to deal with both sides, but even the farmers weren't happy with the choice of mediator because they felt that person was biased to the government position, wasn't really going to listen to them. So for the moment, we're not seeing any way, easy way out of these protests. At last check, farming was a pretty big part uh, of the Dutch economy. If if they start losing farmers and, and farmland, I mean, how crippling could this be to the economy of the Netherlands? Well, that's, a, that's the other good question here. Uh, you and I probably don't realize this, but uh, Holland produces these products, whether it's from pigs or from cows, and they export most of this. They are the second largest exporter of those kinds of products compared to the United States. So they even export more than Australia or New Zealand, who also are heavily dependent on the agricultural sector. Canada, too, depends on the agricultural sector. But for Holland, it's even more of it. And what the farmers are saying is, look, uh, it's all well and good for you to say that these these uh, uh, chemicals should not be released into the environment. But what was it going to mean for me? What, how do I make a living? What do I do? Of course, environmentalists often will say, well, look, that's not our problem. We just know that this issue is a problem. Uh, you'll just have to find something else to do. And they're really feeling they're getting the, the short end of the stick here as it goes. So the whole protest designed to raise the issue in the minds of the public I should point out also, Rick, that in 2019 and 20, the public was really behind the farmers and they really said, you've got a great point. But now that they've escalated this into blocking roads and dumping manure and doing those kinds of things, they're actually losing support now. Less than half the country is supportive of the farmers. So, again, maybe in their situation, if they're trying to get 
that public support less might be more for them at the moment. Marvin Ryder is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. He is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and we're talking about these protests in the Netherlands involving farmers who are up in arms about uh, emissions targets that the government is now setting for nitrogen oxide and ammonia in uh, just a few years' time. What are the chances this comes overseas, or is there a version of it already here in Canada? You know, that's, that's actually an excellent question, too. You know, when we talk about climate change, uh, and we use this euphemism, uh, greenhouse gases, and everyone says, oh, yes, I know what you mean, carbon dioxide. That certainly has been the big greenhouse gas that we have been targeting uh, around the world. Let's reduce our, our CO2 emissions, and that's why we've put the carbon tax on and so on and so forth. Uh, we've not really realized, the average person doesn't realize that that's just one of many greenhouse gases that cause uh, the, the climate to heat up to, for us to retain heat. And so nitrogen oxide and ammonia could be targeted here as well. Now, to date, neither the Canadian nor the American governments have talked about it. When we've had these climate change conferences, the discussion of nitrogen oxide and ammonia has been sort of a side issue. It's never come to the forefront. So, for instance, there is no global attempt to bring these uh, uh, gas emissions down in any way. But could it come here? Absolutely. And it's the old story, you know, Rick, as you solve one problem, another problem might emerge. I don't think anyone going into the climate change discussion should think that if we just get carbon dioxide under control, everything else will be okay. It could. It could come here as well. Now, again, the big difference is that Canada, take Canada specifically, is the second largest geographical country in the world. Yes, agriculture is important here, but it's nowhere near the same prevalence as it is in Holland. And also keep in mind that in Holland, much of the land that is being used has been reclaimed. We all are very familiar with the idea of the polders, where uh, water was removed, uh, the ocean was pushed back to free up land. Holland, uh, a relatively small country. So I think proportionately it's a bigger problem there. I'm not sure we're going to hear about it here, but it could very well uh, spread to other countries around the world. Well, we'll keep an eye on this for sure. Marvin, thanks for enlightening us this morning and have a great day. I will. Glad to be with you. That is Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. They do a lot of different looks on defense. Um, we've gone against our DC in the past, you know, at different stops. Um, but they do a lot of things on defense that we got to be ready for, um, which, you know, you just got to be prepared for, which I feel like we are. Um, and we just got to come out and play. We got to be physical. That is Tiger Cats quarterback Dane Evans breaking down tonight's Tiger Cats Alouettes game at Tim Hortons Field. Second place in the CFL's East Division is on the line. What is going to go down? Let's ask our next guest. R.J. Broadhead is the play-by-play announcer for the Tiger Cats on the Tiger Cats Audio Network, which you can hear every game day here on 900 CHML. R.J., good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Rick. Big game tonight. Huge. And, uh, you know, Coach O has said, hey, this is just the next game on the schedule. Uh, they can't look ahead. But it, it also is the biggest game of the year, considering how the Ticats have played, where they are in the standings, where Montreal is in the standings. How do you see this game playing out? Well, I think it, it has to be desperate football, not only for the Tiger Cats, really for the Alouettes, because you look at the West Division and four teams in the West have a better record than first place in the East. So that crossover is definitely looming. Things can happen. We're still pretty early in the season. But uh, the Tiger Cats, you know, it's funny. 
Coach O, you'll never get him to say this is the most important game. It's always the next one. The players say it. I was talking with Luke Tasker. I was trying to make him say that it's a must win and he wouldn't bite. But it's it's getting to that point because the Tiger Cats already trail the Alouettes by two points in the East Division. If there is a crossover, you want to finish in the top two. Uh, a victory really gets the Tiger Cats back on track. So I, I think the Tiger Cats have to win. They've been... They've been good at home. They blew a couple of leads in games they shouldn't have lost. But their one win this season has come at home. They're 1-0 against the East Division. I expect pretty strong Hamilton Tiger Cats performance, and they can't turn the ball over. Those turnovers have to stop. Ticats were 1-5 in in the first third of the season. The second third of their 18-game schedule features six consecutive games against Montreal and Toronto, do you like this stretch of Eastern Division showdowns for the Ticats? I do. I do, because it really makes the 1-5 and five record in the first third of the season irrelevant. Because if they can be successful in these six games, this basically will decide their season. If you know somehow they can go 6-0, and oh, that would be amazing. Not only would they take points in those victories, but they would allow those other East Division teams to not get any points. So it's, you know, it's the big four-point swing, basically, in all six of these games. Four of those are against Toronto, two of them against Montreal. So it's, it's, this is it. To me, these next six games will decide the season, and Tiger Cats, they still have their fate in their own hands. You don't want to rely on other teams to, to lose to get you into the playoffs. So this is their opportunity to have their fate in their own hands and be successful in these six games. Most important half dozen games we're going to see this year. Absolutely. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, RJ Broadhead, play-by-play announcer with the Ticats Audio Network. Ticats Alouettes tonight uh, at Tim Hortons Field. Our pregame show begins at 6.30, kickoff 7.30. The fifth quarter will follow 30 minutes after the game ends. We're going to see a new Ticat tonight, or at least he'll play in his first game as a Ticat after spending the first six weeks on the injured list with a hand injury, and that's Lamar Durant. What do you expect out of the veteran receiver tonight? Yeah, I think he's going to be a, a great addition for the Tiger Cats offense. He's he's a big, strong receiver. He's he's had success in the CFL, so um, he, he's been ready to get out there. He did have a hand injury, which isn't great for a receiver. He's obviously healed, which is good news. But the other good news with that is he's able to still work out and, and stay in shape. So that shouldn't be a a major issue. I expect to to see Lamar Durant make an impact. I, I think the receiving core, Braylon Addison, seems to be back to 100%. I thought he was really good against BC last Thursday. So I, I think, you know, yeah, you add a weapon like Lamar Durant, Durant it, it, it can only help. We shall see. RJ, appreciate the time. Have a great call tonight. Thanks, Rick. That's RJ Broadhead, play-by-play announcer with the Ticats Audio Network. Ticats Alouettes tonight on 900 CHML and at Tim Hortons Field. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.